Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I introduce today's guest, I'm happy to announce that supporters of the show will soon be able to interact with me through text messages. So stay tuned for more updates on that front. For those of you who are considering joining our community, you can sign up at colemanhughes.org. Today's guest is Michael Schellenberger. Michael Schellenberger is a journalist, author, and environmental activist. He was dubbed a, quote, hero of the environment by Time magazine. He's the founder and president of Environmental Progress, a nonprofit dedicated to eradicating poverty and saving the natural environment. He's co-written and written a number of books, including An Eco-Modernist Manifesto and Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, which is the topic of today's conversation. Michael's book claims that climate change, while a serious threat, is not an apocalyptic one, and the idea that it is ends up causing more harm than good. We talk about the trade-off between reducing global carbon emissions and allowing third-world countries to industrialize. We talk about how civilization would adjust to rising sea levels. We talk about whether climate change would lead to military conflict over scarce resources. We talk about superstorms and forest fires. We talk about the claim that we have to cut carbon emissions in half in the next decade. We talk about the importance of nuclear energy. We talk about carbon capture technology. We talk about cryptocurrency and its environmental consequences. We talk about whether humans are causing a, quote, mass extinction. We talk about whether banning plastic bags is a good policy and much more. So without further ado, Michael Schellenberger. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me, Coleman. I'm really excited to be here. So the topic of this conversation is your book, Apocalypse Never, which I found to be really interesting and useful. I think uh, my audience will as well. But before we get to the themes of the book, can you tell my audience in a nutshell who you are and how you came to care about climate change and the environment? Sure. So I have been an activist really since I was a teenager, so over 30 years now. And I started out being concerned both around environmental issues, but also what we would call today social justice issues, also questions of U.S. imperialism in Central America. Very uh, progressive kid, very left wing. I actually worked for progressive uh, socialist governments in Latin America also was always very involved in the environment. I kind of raised money for Rainforest Action Network when I was a teenager. I started working on environmental uh, causes in my 20s, including saving uh, redwoods. Um, And then I lived for a bunch of time in the semi-Amazon region of Brazil. And it was there that I really started to rethink some of my assumptions just because you're around so much poverty and and most people living in poverty in the countryside, you know, want a want a better life for themselves. And that means that they need to they need we need urbanization and industrialization and the whole thing. Yeah, you, you talk a lot about your time in Brazil and I think a little bit in, in Nicaragua in the book. And that, that's an interesting way to to start out the topic. I think Many people will have heard this point before, but it's, it's really an interesting ethical dilemma for the world to sort out, which is that we who are lucky enough to live in wealthy industrialized nations sort of got in the industrialization game before anyone was concerned about its long run effect on carbon levels and so forth. And now all of these countries that for completely understandable and valid reasons are now really getting into the industrialization game and trying to become wealthy nations are running up against the fact that we now know this is not a free lunch. And it's unfair to them that they might have to 
curb their wealth building where, you know, Europe and America didn't. So can you talk about how you view that dilemma? Yeah, for sure. So if you look at what's happening in the Amazon and the and the semi-Amazonian regions around the rainforest, they're basically converting forest into ranches and farms, which is just identical to what happened in Europe and the United States in the 19th century, uh, when, as you said, people were not as concerned about these issues. You know, I point out that there's a lot of hypocrisy here. There's a kind of neo-colonialism where you know, people go to places like Napa, Provence in France or Tuscany in Italy, and they have meetings about how to prevent the Brazilians from converting their forests into ranches, even as they're surrounded by what was formerly forested land that had been converted into ranches hundreds of years ago. So obviously that's unfair. And it's also not great for the environment because it ends up with some unintended consequences. The biggest one I document in Brazil is that they required, there's big demands to require farmers to set aside about half of their land or sometimes even more uh, rather than, than cut it. And But the consequence was is that you have a real kind of postage stamp, you know, uh, fragmentation of the Amazon that didn't need to occur if they had actually concentrated farming and ranching in the more savanna region south of the rainforest. Where the, where the land is much more productive for farming anyway, but it would have required making some acknowledgement that there would be some amount of deforestation, which uh, a lot of the you know, more ideological environmental groups didn't want to do. And so this is one of the themes of the book is that there's so much environmentalism that's proceeded from the assumption that human development and economic growth are bad for the environment. And so you have all these efforts oriented towards stopping economic growth or slowing economic development, when in many cases you can work with economic development in ways that are both good for people and the environment. Yeah, th- this is, to me, this jumped out as actually the most important theme in your book, is the the notion of national wealth and its positive externalities, I guess you could say. It's like, uh, th- this is not something that's really talked about often or... I, I assume it may not be as as widely known as it should, but I remember one of the facts which you address in your book, but I had read a few years ago that really stuck with me, was just the difference between, say, a hurricane or earthquake, an identical hurricane or earthquake hitting a poor country and hitting a rich country. And just the fact that a country is rich and has the infrastructure that comes along with that means that the the identical weather event will kill an order of magnitude more people in the poorer country. So the, when, when you talk about the importance of the wealth of a nation, you're not just talking about dollars and cents, you're talking about lives. And that's part of, that. that seems to be absent from the conversation but it was, in a way, uh, your your book was sort of an attempt to, at least it seemed to me, really take that point seriously as part of the moral equation to consider when we're talking about climate change. Is that right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, to your point, you know, we've seen this incredible success in terms of protecting ourselves from natural disasters of all kinds, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods are the big ones. And that's a function mostly of development, also advanced weather forecasting. So we've seen a decline in deaths of around 90% since over the last 100 years, but a decline of like 99% in places like Bangladesh. Huge achievement. It's one of the reasons why climate change is not a catastrophic uh, or apocalyptic threat, in my view, is because we've, we've gotten so good at, at dealing with the natural environment. But there's a whole bunch of other things. I mean, Farmers, if they can use less land to grow more food, they're going to save money on land. And that land, that's what's occurred over the last 150 years, uh, particularly in rich countries. And so we've we've seen a lot of, of uneconomical, unproductive farmland revert into grasslands and forests and prairies and be habitat for endangered species. We've actually seen a net greening of North America and Europe over the last uh, 100 years because farming has become more efficient for reasons that didn't have anything to do with conservation or environmental protection, just because farmers were trying to 
uh, be more efficient. And you see that everywhere. We see it with the materials that we use. You see it with, um, you know, we don't want to leak natural gas or methane into the atmosphere because it is a potent greenhouse gas. The people that produce natural gas have an incentive for that not to happen. They want efficiency, too. So efficiency, both in terms of labor, land, resources, productivity, have all been really positive uh, in terms of environmental protection. I mean, there's definitely a period when countries industrialize where you have a new set of environmental impacts, mostly air and water pollution from industrial processes or people living in cities. You know, but even in places like, you know, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, you see that even that process results in in the natural environment being protected because, you know, as I describe in the book, there's, you know, around the world, one of the biggest threats to uh, tropical rainforests is just pressure from very poor small farmers who need that land. And so if they have jobs in the city that they can go to, then it takes that pressure off of the natural environment. They start eating domesticated meats rather than wild meats, which are wild animals, which is still a huge way in which wild animals are killed. So there are a set of positive externalities. I like that word. I hadn't uh, used it in the past, but I think that's the right way to think about it. So let's zoom out a little bit and, and just talk about the sort of main point of your book or the the introductory theme of your book. This book is against climate alarmism. So can you just describe a little bit, what do you mean by that? When you're, you know, you're talking a lot about activists and journalists making maximalist and untrue or sometimes just too pessimistic claims about the extent to which climate change is an apocalyptic threat to humanity and an extinction level event for our species and so forth. So what do you say to someone who, who believes that? How, do you, how would you persuade them in the course of a few minutes that climate change is not the apocalypse? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I point out, you know, climate change is real. It's not the end of the world. It's not our most important environmental problem. Our most important environmental problem is the is uh, continues to be poverty, real serious poverty, global poverty. The two billion people that rely on wood as their primary source of energy and on low efficiency agriculture. We've become incredibly resilient to natural disasters. Nobody predicts that deaths from natural disasters are going to start going up again. You know, just to put it in perspective, about 450 people die every year in the United States from natural disasters. We had 90,000 drug overdose deaths last year. So you're talking, a, you know, a 2,000 times more deaths from drug overdoses than from natural disasters, and nobody thinks it's going to go up. You know, we produce more food than, we've, than humans have ever produced in recorded history. We produce 25% more food than we need. Uh, many of us struggle with eating too much, and that's the big problem, and nobody... Uh, predicts that we're going to have food shortages because of climate change. That may shock people because you hear things that sound rhetorically like that's what's being predicted. But when you go look at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, they predict that uh, food production and surpluses will continue to rise in the future, assuming that poor countries, particularly sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, gain access to irrigation, fertilizer, and tractors, because those are the main drivers of productivity improvements. There are people who worry about sea level rise. It's never actually been something I've been particularly concerned about. See, uh, the, uh, the median predicted sea level rise, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is a half meter, about 0.6 meters, you know, less than two feet. We can and will adapt to that. To give you some perspective, people in, that, in the Netherlands, they farm seven meters below sea level. So we're able to live below sea levels. You know, people say, well, it'll be expensive, and that may be the case, but it's not like Netherlands is poor because they live below sea level. So what does that actually mean, practically speaking? Because so, I think, you know, when you think of rising sea levels, I'm picturing, you know, I, I live on, on the water in New York, and I'm just picturing having to liter quite literally move back civilization like in practical terms, what does it mean to adjust to rising sea levels? What does that look like? I mean, in practical terms, it means that most cities are going to be able to create seawalls, sea barriers, flood management systems in the same way we've been doing for a couple of hundred years. You know, I, uh, in Venice, uh, Italy, 
I went and visited the basically the flood management system because Venice is sinking um, and it floods frequently. So they built this uh, these flood these uh, flood walls. Uh, they call it Moses that protects the city mechanically. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, New York will have to continue to do what it's always done, which is to make investments in its water infrastructure. I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for, you know, there's people that are kind of like, well, what about these people that have beach houses and they're gonna have to move inland, you know, Crimea river. I mean, you have a beach house. Um, I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to subsidize it. A lot of this, there's an agenda. One of the financial agendas at work here is to get everybody to subsidize, you know, wealthier homeowners to uh, move inland. I'm not very sensitive to that because it doesn't seem fair. The bigger concern is uh, poor farmers in Bangladesh. A lot of them live right there on the coastline. But the main factor for their future livelihoods and their futures in general is having jobs in the city. It's through urbanization and industrialization. So, I mean, what I became interested in was sort of the ways, and this relates to a lot of the work that you've done and have been thinking about, which is the ways in which I think we impose a view of fragility on people as though it would somehow be unthinkable that people could adapt to rising sea levels when like it's like any familiarity with human history knows that we're our success as a species is precisely due to our ability to adapt to situations much more difficult than the gradual raising of sea levels over the next hundred years. So let me just rewind to a point you made a little bit earlier, which is this notion that climate change is not likely to lead to food shortages because I think this is something I've heard a lot of people worry about is that there will be some kind of resource scarcity as a result of climate change that will lead to military conflict and so forth. So what do you make of that worry? Yeah, I mean, so you're the, the military conflict, you're at least adding, we're adding two uh, links in a causal chain there. So but that particular question and the question of refugees was looked at and has been looked at in the peer reviewed literature. And just basically like all these things, there are just other factors that massively outweigh whatever impact climate change would have. You know, I think it's important to remember that people, people, human beings live in different environments around the world. We live in very dry environments. We live in very wet environments. We live in the tropics. We live in the Arctics. We're very good at living in different places. So the idea that something will occur that will make um, our lives, you know, make make you know the whole planet unlivable is is just nowhere in anybody's in any of the scientific literature, you know. And in terms of, I mean, we grow food everywhere too, right? I mean, we're able to grow food in all sorts of places. So it's it's you know those concerns are really a lot of those concerns come from political actors you know, including activist scientists, activist journalists, activists who want to make a big deal of it. But whenever you look at it, you know, when they kind of go, oh, the Syrian civil war is somehow related to, you know, droughts and the droughts are somehow related to climate change. I mean, even on this issue of droughts, we've been seeing droughts have been going down. They're not going up. There's been no change in terms of the damage from hurricanes. Once you account for the greater wealth that's in the path of hurricanes, so we're just not seeing these big changes um, that people have feared, particularly on this particular issue of droughts in particular. But even where you do have droughts, California has periodic droughts, and yet we somehow managed to be one of the biggest uh, food producers in the world. So what about the fires in California? To what extent are, are, the, are the forest fires uh, or the frequency of them, A, rising, and to the extent that they are, is that a consequence of climate change? Here's the way I can simplify it as best as I can. Climate change, climate change is neither necessary nor sufficient for the high intensity fires, which are the bad fires. Mm. There's a whole other set of fires that we want called low intensity fires, which are the fires that burn at the base of the forest floor and they burn up woody debris. And part of the problem is that when European settlers came to California, they started putting out the fires on the forest floor. And then, of course, they logged the forests. As that uh, timber became less valuable, the forests uh, were not getting logged. And so you had a buildup of a lot of woody debris, just a lot of wood fuel in the forests. 
And so you, when you had fires, they ended up being, when we have fires in those forests, they ended up being what are called high intensity fires and they burn the crowns of the trees. And nobody likes that because it ends up destroying, it actually kills the whole tree. Whereas the low intensity fires don't kill trees. And in fact, they're actually necessary often for, for tree growth. And so you want to avoid the high intensity fires. So what we saw in California last summer was a really cool phenomenon, which is that you had these high intensity fires coming from these forests that were badly managed. They arrived in a well-managed forest and then the fires dropped to the forest floor and became low density, low intensity fires. So, so, so yeah, climate change is neither necessary nor sufficient for these high intensity fires. Whereas the buildup of wood fuel is sufficient for both is sufficient and necessary for those, for those fires. So, so what about the, the fire in Australia last year? Very similar story in Australia, at least for one kind of forest that we have here, which is that it's really ignition driven, meaning that uh, particularly in the shrubland forests, more of the chaparral type forests where it's more bushy and dry than the kind of alpine or mountain forests that we have. In those, it's just really driven by people. And so the main challenge is reducing human uh, ignitions, you know, which in California has often been caused by electrical wires that had not been sufficiently maintained. And also in Australia and here, just by people, you know, smoking cigarettes, having fires, whatever that rage out of control and getting those put out. So when you look at those factors and you look at the science on it and you interview the scientists, it's not that climate change isn't a factor. It's just a much smaller one that's drowned out by these larger factors, namely development and forest management. So the next question relates to a claim that was, that, that I think has been around for many years, but went viral, I think, because of Ocasio-Cortez, either on, on Instagram or TikTok last year, I think. I think this was last year. There was, a, there was a pretty viral video of her saying we have 10 years to cut carbon emissions in half while like eating walnuts or building furniture or something. It was a kind of strange video. And to your, you know, th- there was some kind of disconnect between the rhetoric of it and her behavior of like building furniture. It, it just didn't seem like someone who believed the world was going to end in 10 years. But, but aside from that, where does that claim come from and you know, what's the difference between what the claim actually is and how it got exported into the culture? Yeah, great question. So, okay, so in Apocalypse Never, you know, I defend the IPCC science. That's the main intergovernmental panel on climate change. I defend their science and then I criticize their summaries for policymakers. I criticize their public relations and press releases and then the statements that scientists make at those press conferences. And so what they've what what they did is they say, if we don't see emissions peak, global emissions peak and decline by such and such amount by 2030, then we are highly unlikely to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees or two degrees of an increase since pre-industrial levels. So they don't say the world will end. They just say we'll have a hard time keeping temperatures below two degrees. Is the two degrees is the mainstream number, but these numbers are also all fairly arbitrarily chosen. And then she, so she, so they exact, so she, they exaggerate by saying that if you go over two degrees, the world ends. Mm. And they also exaggerate the amount of certainty, even in how much temperatures and emissions are related. So just to give you an idea what we call the climate sensitivity, which is how much do we think temperatures will increase above pre-industrial temperatures if uh, the concentration of carbon emissions doubles. So the the best estimate is somewhere between one and a half degrees and four degrees uh, centigrade. So you already have a huge range. So you're sort of, as you might imagine, to get to that statement of the world is going to end you have multiple simplifications and exaggerations happening at the same time. So 
how important is is nuclear energy to our prospects for to, to our prospects of reducing carbon emissions and why does it not seem to be a bigger part of the conversation? Why are we dragging our feet on it if it's important? So the the answer to the first question is, you know, I always like to just uh, look at when you're when you're comparing different energy technologies, I think it's important to look at entire countries because then you see you're not cherry picking. You can see a comparison between two countries over time. So I always point to France and Germany. France uh, generates electricity that produces one tenth of the carbon emissions as Germany. And the reason and at one half of the price. So it uh, produces 10 percent of the carbon emissions as Germany for about 50 uh, percent the cost. And it does so because France is 75 percent nuclear and Germany is moving away from nuclear and heavily doing renewables. So when you see the countries that have been able to basically eliminate air pollution uh, because nuclear power plants don't produce uh, air pollution or water pollution, um, they've done so with nuclear. And that goes even in the United States. If you look at places like Illinois, which are very heavy nuclear, they also have some of the cleanest electricity and also the cheapest. The problem with renewables is that they require you know, 300 times more land than solar and wind, which takes a lot of money. They are less efficient in terms of labor. And then they're weather dependent. And so you can't depend on them, meaning that if you have a heat wave or you have a cold snap or something happens, as we saw in California and Texas, you always have to have some baseload power plant ready to go. And so what Germany has done is just kept its coal plants around. We just burn gas. But when you over depend on those weather dependent renewables like we did in California and Texas, you have blackouts and people die. So the, the why are people so afraid of it? If nuclear is so good, why are people afraid of it? You know, the short answer to it is that people associate nuclear power plants with nuclear weapons. And they, uh, to use a psychological concept, they displace their anxiety from the power plants onto uh, nuclear weapons. I did this. Um, I grew up in the 80s, and that was a time when people were much more worried about nuclear war than they are today. And I used to think nuclear power plants, if they had a meltdown, it was the same thing as them exploding. I know that I might have been in the minority in terms of thinking that, but there's still a lot of people that just have a basic fear of nuclear power plants because they they think it's the same as a weapon or they think it somehow leads to nuclear weapons. There's a related part of that, and I can never tell quite which is more important or if one of them is more important than the other. But it's just this issue that, you know, if you have nuclear power plants and you're France, you don't need to change how people live their lives. People can keep producing, consuming a lot of energy. They can consume a lot of electricity. When you have electric cars or fuel cell cars that are powered by nuclear power plants, they don't produce carbon emissions. So there's no need. There's no basis for moralizing. So if you're someone that really wants to that gains a lot of pleasure from telling other people how to live their lives, telling them not to eat meat, telling them they have to have solar on their roofs, telling them that they have to use a lot less energy. Nuclear is a bummer because it means that there's no basis for your demands of radical societal transformation. You can just have a technical fix and nuclear is the ultimate technical fix. And so you see this theme a lot. Um, and, and the resistance here particularly came from a group of people that were followers of the British economist uh, Thomas Malthus who believed axiomatically that humans were going to run out of resources. Well, the followers of Malthus are really threatened by nuclear because nuclear means you'll never run out of energy because nuclear is fundamentally infinite. And if you have infinite and reliable clean energy, then you can have infinite fertilizer and infinite fresh water thanks to desalination and, and, to, and conventional uh, methods of producing fertilizer. So you'll never run out of food. I mean, there's... There's an argument to be made that there's really never a scarcity issue with fossil fuels either because there's so much fossil fuels in the world. And now there's even more than ever because we know how to get natural gas at a low cost out of the oceans and out of uh, shale. But nuclear was a real threat to people who had an interest, whether it was psychological or spiritual or economic, in creating scarcity and in creating the notion that scarcity that there was some uh, scarcity that existed for sort of inherently physical reasons. 
Brilliant is a website and app that teaches you how to think and solve problems with fun, interactive lessons in STEM. With Brilliant's hands-on approach, you'll learn by doing instead of listening to lectures. It's a better and more fun way to learn. All of Brilliant's courses have storytelling, code writing, interactive challenges, and problems to solve. Brilliant offers many well-curated sequences of problems that help you master all sorts of technical subjects. So if you're into physics, you can try out their course on classical mechanics or gravitational physics. If you're into computers and coding, you can check out their courses on CompSci fundamentals or programming with Python. Brilliant has a vast array of courses that can help you achieve your goals in STEM. To check out the many courses available and find the one that's right for you, you can go to brilliant.org CWC and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to this link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash CWC. Yeah, I, th- I think, I do think in many cases, technical fixes are less popular than moral fixes, than, than fixes that allow for a crusade. Because technical fixes appeal to the wonk in you. And that just, that just tends to be a less popular kind of mode of talking about issues than what appeals to the warrior and crusader in you. It seems just more people are wired for the crusade and for battle than for any solution that is wonky and technical and maybe nerdy, but in many cases better. The other idea that in the same vein is the possibility of carbon capture technology. Can you describe what that is and tell us to what extent it's actually possibly a fix or, or a solution to these issues? Is it just science fiction or does it seem possible? Oh, no, it's totally possible. In fact, there's really no disagreement that we can do it. It's the problem. There's no important science or really that significant of engineering required to capture and bury the carbon emissions. It's just expensive because you're adding a huge additional piece of machinery onto the onto coal or natural gas plants. And you're also having to store that carbon underground safely for a long period of time, which I think you can do. But again, it's very expensive. And then there's also an energy penalty, meaning you have to use a significant amount of that energy just to pull the carbon off and put it underground. So it's something that a lot of Democrats and Republicans can find agreement on. I personally just don't buy it. I, I kind of think, you know, one thing people don't realize, we the United States has reduced its carbon emissions more than any other country in the world ever over the last 20 years. And it was almost entirely due from moving from coal to natural gas. We didn't, do, there was all these ideas 10 years ago, 12 years ago, to that we would sort of do keep our coal plants going, but use carbon capture and storage. We just shut down the coal plants and did natural gas. And that was just more economical. The gas was so much cheaper. And honestly, when people are like, well, we can have carbon capture and storage with natural gas, it's half as efficient because there's half as much carbon emissions from gas as coal. And so then you have to raise the question of, well, why aren't you just building a nuclear plant? Like, what is it like? Why? You're going to go to all this cost of all this heavy machinery. Like, why would you not just build nuclear? So I tend to be skeptical both as a analyst who tries to forecast the future to some extent, recognizing how bad we are at that, but also as some as an advocate and and somebody that is asked to advise policymakers. And none of the policymakers like to hear this because everybody wants to support the R and D for carbon capture and storage, or whatever. But I'm just I'm just a carbon capture and storage. Uh, skeptic, not because I think there's anything like immoral about it or science fiction about it. It just don't think it makes that much sense economically. Why wouldn't you just use natural gas and nuclear? And do you do you doubt the possibility of discovering some method of carbon capture that's way cheaper? Well, we have. I mean, there is this thing called Net Power, which is a company that um, has been able to use the carbon that they capture from natural gas production for industrial purposes including enhanced oil um, recovery, which is a way of shooting the carbon dioxide into oil you know, resources and, and pull the oil out. But it's still not particularly scalable. And again, if you're if you're you know, you can just think about it. The picture is 
you can have a system with a natural gas plant that burns the natural gas, or you can have a system that burns the natural gas and also captures the carbon emissions. The, the second system is always going to be more expensive just because there's no there's not really that big of a market for carbon emissions. You know, if there were, there would be a lot more companies capturing them and selling them. And even its use for enhanced oil recovery is pretty limited. So, I mean, I never say never. And in general, I'm happy to spend a lot of money on R&D, you know, like in part because I know enough about the history of innovation that people try to do things that don't work, but then something else good will come out of it. And so you kind of go, all right, there should be there should be R&D funding for it, but it wouldn't be something I would that I would expect would be used at significant levels in the future. All right. So here's a topic that's been in the news the past two weeks, especially, I would say. This is cryptocurrency and its energy usage. And I think it's especially been in, in the news ever since Elon Musk announced that Tesla would no longer be accepting Bitcoin after, of course, selling all of their Bitcoin strategically uh, before this announcement. But um, many people are worried about the, the energy usage and, and, and therefore carbon emissions generated by people needing to mine new Bitcoins and uh, what that means for the future of cryptocurrency and what policies we should adopt, if any, to curb that. So do you, have you been paying attention to this and do you have an opinion on it? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is, um, I got, I was in a big controversy 10 years ago, almost um, eight years ago, because I, I pointed out that, you know, you know, it's cloud computing, cloud, ser- you know, the servers, all of the IT that we have, the ways in which IT has become a huge part of the whole economy that would use a significant amount of energy. And so that there were these earlier assumptions by advocates of renewables and efficiency that you would be able to significantly reduce how much energy people like you and I use. And the idea was, you know, after the your infrastructure is built and your house is built and whatever, that there's just not, we're not going to keep adding that many more things in terms of like end use appliances uh, that would require a lot of energy use. But obviously Bitcoin is this just enormous user of electricity. It requires gigantic quantities of electricity. Again, if it's all coming from a nuclear plant, the environmental consequences are very low. So there's not like, what I don't like about the way people talk about Bitcoin is that people talk about using electricity as though it's bad. It's not bad. In fact, most of the history of electricity is mostly about replacing much, much worse forms of energy use you know, including burning wood and, and dung. And, and it allows for, you know, all sorts of uh, applications that end up being quite good for the environment. So I think that I want, part of what I want to do in Apocalypse Never is to help to retrain our thinking so that we would understand that what you want to do is use less natural resource, but we don't really care if you use a lot of energy. Now you may say, but don't you need a lot of natural resource to produce a lot of energy? And the answer is, it depends if you're producing, you know, to give you a sense of it, you know, a glass of if this, this amount of uranium is sufficient fuel, it's sufficient resource to power my entire life. So who cares? Like that impact on the environment is like negligible as opposed to, you know, many train cars full of coal, much more of that in wood. So I think what, what I take out of the Bitcoin conversation is that, yes, we're going to need a lot more energy in the future. And that's okay. We shouldn't moralize against that, but we should understand the importance of using cleaner and more energy-dense forms of energy like nuclear. One point that was, I thought was pretty compelling in defense of cryptocurrency is that r- really the problem is our entire grid to begin with, right? It's It's not as if crypto is some new problem, right? Like in theory, if the whole world were on nuclear crypto. We wouldn't even be having this conversation because the electricity crypto uses would be highly efficient and not causing very much harm to the environment. So this, the root cause of the problem is not inherently crypto's use of energy. 
but the way that energy is derived from, you know, inefficiently from, from natural resources. On the other hand, there's the point that just any, any large surge in energy usage, you know, given that our current way of getting energy is not rapidly changing, is going to exacerbate the problem. So I could see both sides of the debate there. Yeah. I mean, I think the picture I want to paint is that a world where most everybody lives in cities, where a tiny amount of land is required for growing food. Food is so humans use you know, just as humans use about half the ice free surface of the earth for ourselves. The other half we don't use and is what we call nature. The half that we use is almost all for food production. So cities take up a half a percent. And current energy production is also under a percent. Meat production is a full 25% of the ice-free surface of the earth. So if you can reduce how much land we use to grow to pasture for cattle and other pasture meats, you're making huge differences. But a world where, like most people are in cities, you're producing your meat on small amounts of land. You can even, we now, we can produce uh, fish on land. You're generating all your electricity from nuclear and your cars are powered by hydrogen fuel cells. You, we've, that world, if that world were, if we were to create that world, you would have a much more ecologically rich world, a much, a much more nature in that world. I mean, there's no reason we couldn't get to using one quarter of the ice-free surface of the earth rather than half. I mean, it would depend on rewilding a bunch of places, but there's no technological reason you couldn't do it. So let's talk a little bit about the, the sixth mass extinction. This is something I, I hear about from time to time and something many people are worried about. So can you describe what it is to what a mass extinction is and what it means for us to be currently in the midst of the sixth one? So if we were in a sixth mass extinction, somewhere over 75% of all species on Earth would be extinct or on the verge of extinction. Instead, 6% are considered critically endangered by the main body that studies this, the main scientific body, which is called the International Union of, of Conservation of Nature. Humans have, we think the best estimate is that humans have caused 0.8% of all species on earth to go extinct since 1500, when our species really took off and, and all around the world. So we're just not anywhere close to that level. And nobody, the way that they claim it is by, by doing things like they'll say things like, if you look from 19, if you take the rate of habitat loss from 1960 to 2000, and you assume that that rate will continue to accelerate at those levels for the next thousand years or something, hundreds of years, then you could have a six mass extinction. That's how they do it. And it's just, I mean, it's pretty silly. Like when I get the, when I've gotten the heads of the big, the two big biodiversity organizations on the phone and I'm like, are we in a six mass extinction? They say, no, like it's just not even. So it's really, um, it's sad because, you know, it's not where we should be focused. The other issue is just that it turns out that animals Wild animals are much better at surviving at smaller populations than scientists had assumed. There's some tragedy here, too. You know, so there's like 1000 whooping cranes in the United States. That's one of our most iconic birds. You know, it's our iconic crane. It's the Audubon. There's only a thousand of them left. The problem is that there's not enough habitat for them. And, and what we want is more whooping cranes. You know, we could probably keep whooping cranes from going extinct for a long time, but still not have enough whooping cranes if we care about whooping cranes. You know, so I think that I, it's, um, it's an apocalyptic public relations device, extinctions were. I think the other thing that people don't realize is that, you know, species are being created and going extinct in nature. So even if there were no, there's a picture that people have that humans kind of, you know, showed up, and then we just started destroying Eden and, and we were and only uh, species extinction is only caused by humans or something. But species go extinct all the time and then new species are created all the time. One of the challenges for scientists is just figuring out 
what that background extinction rate is and how much we're increasing it. So um, I guess one overarching criticism people might have of, of your book is that, you know, is, is the idea that maybe alarmism isn't so bad, right? Maybe it's the case that we tend so much towards complacency and a bias towards the present and not preventing future concerns that we need some environmental alarmism to correct for our sort of inherent complacency. What would you say to that idea? Yeah, I heard this a lot. It was always surprising because I heard it the most from reporters, mm. you know, who are in the business of alarmism and in the business of hype. My, my first point is that, okay, so what's the evidence that alarmism has achieved positive environmental benefits? I can't find any. I mean, I'm not saying there isn't any. I just can't find any significant cases of it. You know, to give you a sense of it, you know, we, we've had alarmism, but the alarmists were actually arguing against the technologies that resulted in the carbon emissions declining. So the alarmists, the ones saying there's a climate alarmism, the world's coming to an end, opposed fracking, which is why carbon emissions declined more in the United States for the last 20 years than any other country. I think then, you you know, and so you, I think part of the problem with the two. Nuclear as well. Nuclear. And nuclear as well, of course. Yeah. But everything really genetically modified seeds. A genetically modified fish that can uh, grow twice as fast and and be bred on land. These are all technologies that environmentalists oppose. So, I mean, where I, my view is that alarmism for many people is the goal itself. That the alarmism is the whole point. It's the meaning for living for a lot of people. It's why journalists, a lot of environmental journalists get up in the morning. It's to be alarmists. It's a way to attract attention. It's a way to attract resources. It's a way to shape the conversation. But the problem is, is that the alarmism has actually, uh, in these specific cases we've been describing, has actually made things worse for the environment. But we've also seen some really bad mental health problems. We know that half of all people surveyed think that climate change could make humans go extinct. We know that one out of five British school children have nightmares about climate change. I just think that adolescents have enough to worry about. And we've seen rising anxiety, depression and suicide among adolescents over the last 10 years. Probably I, if Jonathan Haidt's right about this, then probably because of social media. But I don't think we need to be adding to it by telling kids they're not going to live long enough to have their own kids, which is basically what alarmists have been doing. I think part of this also is, I mean, as you were just describing all of the very wise and useful and ethical technologies that many environmentalists have opposed over the years, it has occurred to me that so much of the confusion around what is actually good for the environment and what solutions are worth promoting stems from this aesthetic concern about purity and maybe false distinction between what's man-made and what's nature-made. And this is a theme you can see in so many movies. And I think it will, people will know what I'm talking about when I say this. It's just this sense that whatever is man-made is inherently soiled and whatever is is made by nature is just definitionally pure and whenever there's a dilemma you should always err on the side of you know going against the clever man-made technology that in some some strange way god will smite you for your hubris and you should just put on your loincloth and prefer the the natural alternative that's sort of the rule of thumb, the emotional rule of thumb many people have on this issue. And it's, it's understandable at an intuitive level, but when you substitute it for rational thought, you just come to all of these false conclusions about what is actually going to get us out of this problem we're facing as a species. Yeah, it's a contradictory discourse, right? Because we've also heard that solar panels are so cheap that we don't need any other form of energy. And that Elon Musk has created batteries, so we just need solar panels and batteries. 
I mean, I've honestly, I've been hearing that we just need solar panels and batteries for 20 years. That's mm -hmm. how long that discourse has been around because they're so cheap. So there's, uh, there's multiple, it's a contradictory discourse, right? The other idea, of course, is that solar panels are more natural than nuclear power plants. You know, even though they're both technologies, we now know that solar panels are made with the only way they can make solar panels cheap enough to be viable is to use uh, forced labor in among Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang province of China, something I've been writing a lot about, and also by using coal and heavy government subsidies. So, but yeah, you're right. The purity thing, it's obviously very old. And the, you know, I kind of point to there's really money, power, and religion. And the new religion is a religion of nature. And it's it, the idea is that you achieve some kind of spiritual transcendence, a kind of sustainability by harmonizing society with the natural environment, including the natural energy flows and stock at uh, natural energy flows like sunlight and wind rather than stocks like coal and natural gas and uranium. And the purity thing has always been used as a shorthand for goodness. You know, um, so I definitely think you're right. It's amazing how much intellectual scaffolding, the simple idea that nature is pure and humans are a contaminant requires, you know, to get from there to, 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 you know, it requires assuming that humans are not part of nature. Of course, it's really a, a story from Genesis. You know, it's a really a biblical story, you know, that we were in harmony with nature, but we fell from it once we, you know, ate from the tree of knowledge and yeah. the tree of technology, really. Okay. So, um, just, I guess two more questions here, two or three more questions. I, uh, I was, I was interested in the part of the book where you talk about whether banning plastic bags is actually a wise policy. Cause I think just instinctively, most people assume however annoying this policy is, there must be, this must be good for the environment. So what's your position on that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to know about uh, the plastics that we, the dominant kind of plastic we use today is made already from a waste byproduct from the petrochemical industry, from the oil and gas industry. So it's already, you're already making your plastics out of a waste byproduct. The other thing people should understand is that the original plastics were bioplastics and they were horrible, like ivory from elephants. The tusks of elephants were used to make pool balls, billiard balls, piano keys. The shells of sea turtles were used to make tortoise shell glasses and other jewelry. And we decimated the sea turtle population, particularly the hawksbill tortoise, the hawksbill turtle for that purpose. So we saved a bunch of endangered species thanks to plastics, who we call modern plastics. And it would be terrible to go back to bioplastics because they're so much worse for the environment. They just take up, it's not only that they, uh, they're actually more polluting, and this is true for biofuels as well, but they just, they require much more land. You know, you have to, to make plastic out of corn, you have to have a lot of land for corn growing. We should want less land to grow our corn on, and then we can revert some of our corn fields to, to, if you care about the environment, to, grasslands and forests and, and the like. And I guess the final part of it, plastics ended up being much more complex and interesting than I thought when I decided to write that chapter because it was not something I had done before. But the third part of it and the most mind-boggling part is that the, the plastic waste in the oceans, a significant part of it appears to be from our efforts to recycle plastic. And the reason is that 90% of our plastic that we put in recycling bins, whether you're in New York or Paris or San Francisco, it is not recycled. And a lot of it is shipped to poor countries who promise to recycle it, but they actually don't. And they end up, a lot of it ends up going into the oceans. So it's one of the most, I think it's such a crazy story. And people are, you know, they're only starting now, it's really only now starting to dawn on plastic recycling advocates that we probably shouldn't be recycling plastics at all. Like we really ought to be just throwing them in the trash or incinerating them. And that's not to say that's for the case for everything. I mean, I think there's still a good case to be recycling glass and tin and paper. But the plastic is such a, it's already such a degraded, lightweight material 
that it's just not worth recycling. It's just easier to you have original feedstock from the petrochemical industry that you can use. And it's all going to have to be thrown away eventually unless we're going to just dump it all in the ocean, which we don't want to do. So I think that's the most stunning part of it is that petrochemical plastics are good. We have a technical solution, which is landfills and incineration and the effort to recycle them and it'll create a lot of plastic waste. All right. So before I let you go, I just want to hit one more time on this big picture point of the trade-off between envi- uh, between policies that would reduce emissions v- uh, a good deal in a short amount of time and global poverty. Because this is it's not a default part of the conversation in many people's minds that there might be a trade-off here. It's certainly not part of the conversation that is obvious if you're just watching cable news debates on environmental policy. So before I let you go, I want you to maybe reiterate for someone who doesn't understand why are the issues of climate alarmism and global poverty even related and how are they related and what is what how does a wise person care about both of these if indeed there is a trade-off between solving both problems um i i don't think there's huge trade-offs i i think that in fact lifting the poorest people out of poverty is mostly going to be a net benefit for the environment so if you you know when you look at What's the threat to the most spectacular park uh, wildlife reserve in in Africa, uh, at least in the Congo? You know, it's just a lot of really poor small farmers trying to survive and they are going into the park to collect wood for fuel. They're they're occupying parts of the park to grow food. Um, The solution is for them to get jobs in the city, which is what most people want. And also then takes the pressure off of the forests and generates income for farmers to use irrigation, fertilizer and tractors to grow more food for the people that have moved to the cities. It's really a benevolent process. Um, it, it is the key to protecting environmental areas. I and mean, we saw um, there's other things you can do in India. The government has been giving liquefied petroleum gas, which is basically like natural gas, but it's in canisters. They've been giving it out to poor residents who were using wood you know, in the Himalayas. And we saw that it allowed for forest regrowth. When people don't have to use wood for fuel, they don't, when the people, people don't want to use wood for fuel, for the most part, you know, some of us that use it for a barbecue once in a while, but I mean, most poor people would much rather have natural gas like we have for cooking. So there's so much of that where I think there's such a benevolent process and the efforts to deprive poor countries of cheap energy, which is really what the World Bank has been doing by diverting money from cheap and reliable power sources towards unreliable ones like solar panels and batteries, as well as trying to deny poor countries agricultural aid, you know, I think is really um, quite sinister and quite uh, inhumane. And so I wanted the book to, you know, talk about how we have a moral obligation, I think, to help everybody in the world achieve levels of prosperity and living standards that we enjoy and take for granted and are ungrateful for. <laughs> and and also to see the ways in which that's also good for the natural environment. Right. So before you leave, can you uh, just tell my audience where to find your work? Obviously the, the book is called Apocalypse Never. And there's a lot in the book that we were not able to get to in this conversation. So I, I highly recommend you grab it. But it, do you have a website or an organization as well that people yeah. can find you? Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm, I should mention I'm also a president of Environmental Progress. It's an environmental group in Berkeley, California, environmentalprogress.org. Um, I write a column for Forbes, but I'm also in the process of uh, joining the Substack revolution. Nice. And so people should join my Substack. And I'm also on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I love your show, Coleman. So um, would love to hear from your readers. and. And my new book comes out in the fall and hopefully we can reconnect around that one too. All right. Sounds great. This has been great. Till next time. Awesome. Thanks, Coleman. All right. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org. 
and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.